Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here at Christ Community Church, and it's, be good, it's good to be with you all this morning as we have gathered to worship our great God. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the 11th chapter this morning. So 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at verses 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, as we continue in our series on the sacraments. And so uh, this is a big, big passage this morning, and the key truth that we're going to explore together today is this. We must prepare for the Lord's Supper to benefit from it as a means of grace. Let me say that again. The key truth from this text is this. We must prepare for the Lord's Supper to benefit from it as a means of grace. So let's turn now and give our attention to the reading of God's word. This again is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Paul says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, as, as we turn to this text in our series on the sacraments, this is one of the most important New Testament passages about the Lord's Supper. And in this text, you may have already noticed that Paul draws from Jesus' words of institution, uh, the words that Jesus spoke as he gave us the Lord's Supper as a sacrament until he returns. And so, as we'll see, Paul was addressing a very specific problem in the Corinthian church. And his instructions, though, as he's pointing them back to what Jesus said, his instructions were not just for that problem for the Corinthians, but his instructions apply to Christians down through the ages until Christ returns. This passage is the premier passage that teaches us 
What does preparing to come to the Lord's Supper look like? How do we do that week in and week out of our Christian lives? Now, as we begin, it's worth asking ourselves, um, what do you expect to happen when we, at, at Christ Community, what do you expect to happen when we come to the Lord's table? And how are your expectations shaping your preparations? You see, if you think about the role expectations play in your life, they often do a lot in terms of um, determining how much or how little you will prepare for something. So think about food. If you are going to go grab a meal from a drive-thru, you don't have terribly high expectations. You just want a quick meal that will fill you up, maybe healthily or not, probably not, and you want it at a decent price and reasonably quickly. So your expectations shape your preparations. If you're going to the drive-thru, you do not bust out your favorite suit or cocktail dress for a night in the drive-thru lane. You're just going to go in your car, you can wear your pajamas, doesn't matter. You're going in, you're getting your food, and you're getting out. Even if it's Chick-fil-A, you're not going to dress up for it. So the whole point is no preparations are required. You can get that food quickly, it's convenient. You get in line, order, pay, drive away. Mission accomplished. But if you go to a nice restaurant, it's very different. Your expectations ought to be much higher. And thus, your preparations are more involved. You'll probably make a reservation if it's a really nice restaurant. You're going to think very carefully about what you will wear. And you might research the menu. You'll spend time reading reviews. You'll want to know, like, if I'm going to this place, I can't go here all the time. So I want to make sure whatever I get, it's worth my time. And I want to be ready to enjoy that meal. You get there early. If you've got to find parking, like, you're not going to miss that reservation. You prepare because your expectations are high. And so what about the Lord's Supper? Do we treat it like a spiritual drive through something we do with rather low expectations and very little preparation? Or do we expect it to be one of the central and most powerful things God uses to nourish our faith? Question 170 of the larger catechism that's in your bulletin, I won't read all of it now, but if you, if you reflect on that later, what you will notice is it sets very high expectations not for, for you personally, but for what God has promised to do through the Lord's table. This meal is where God will nourish our faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. As really, that question says, as really as that bread passes your lips and that cup passes your lips, so really does the Spirit nourish your faith on the body and blood of Jesus that he gave for you. It is a real and powerful thing. It is at the core of how God grows us at, as his people. And so do we expect that? And if we do, are we preparing accordingly? And this passage that Paul, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it helps us think through, well, okay, if, if the Lord's Supper is that meaningful, if it's that significant in our life as believers, in our life together as a church, what do we do to prepare for it? How do we do that well? And this passage will help us think that through. So let's turn to the text and unpack this together. We'll take it in, in a few chunks as we go. And the first chunk we'll look at is verses 17 through 22. And the way to think about these verses is this is the problem. Paul is first going to say, what's going wrong in the, the life of the Corinthian church? And he begins straight away by naming the problem. Verse 17, when the Corinthian church was coming together, so when they were gathering to worship God, it was not for the better. It was for the worse. And that, that is the canary in the coal mine because when God's people gather together to worship him, that ought to be to glorify God and if God is being glorified, then that ought to be nourishing and building up God's people. It ought to be for the better. If that's not happening, something's wrong. And that was not happening at the Corinthian church. Something was wrong. Something about their gatherings was off because it was not for the better. It was for the worse. 
And so Paul then identifies two factors that were contributing to the problem that they were experiencing, the problem that they were actually creating as they gathered. The first thing he says in verse 18 is that there were divisions among them when they came together and gathered as a church. Notice there's a very sharp contrast just in the way Paul says that. They are coming together as a church, and yet there's division. The division persists. If you're coming together, the divisions ought ought subside. You should be united, but that's not happening. And as we'll see in a moment, these particular divisions that they were experiencing were socioeconomic in nature. In other words, they were dividing um, based upon their, their status and their wealth, the rich and the poor. There were becoming very clear divisions along those lines when the church was coming together. And the Greco-Roman culture and society they lived in, it had very clear and established patterns for how you would differentiate between the rich and the poor. And as we'll see, those patterns were infiltrating and setting the table literally for the Corinthian church, and that was the problem. Now before, though, Paul um, says how that is particularly playing out in their church, he does say something very interesting in verse 19. He says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That almost feels a little puzzling at first, right? Because we're thinking, well, if Paul has an issue with factions and division, why would he say there must be factions among you? It almost sounds like he's saying, yeah, division, you know, that's normal, just expect it. But what Paul's doing here is very, very intentional. He's starting to, in sort of a jujitsu style, he's redirecting the force of their practice and showing them how their logic is off base. They're thinking that, yeah, look, we're, we're in a Greco-Roman society. Everywhere you go, you separate the rich and the poor. And Paul's saying, actually, the divisions that are going to go on, they're not going to be about flashing how rich you are. God is going to work through this situation, and he's going to reveal who is genuine among you. And genuine on God's terms, not on human terms. We like to determine what's it mean to be a real Christian, a real American, a real sports fan, whatever. We like to set the terms of genuineness, but Paul is preparing them to see, no, God sets the terms for genuineness. Genuine Christians are those who are Christ-like. And in the face of these factions and division, those who are genuine among them will be those who repent, those who grow in humility, those who will pursue unity in the face of the division they've created. So Paul already, he's, he's kind of firing a flare across the bow, and he's preparing them to recognize, you need to change the way you're thinking. God is up to something better than you are imagining right now, and he's going to work even this for your good, to sanctify you, to refine you in Christ. And so then with that, with that uh, card played, Paul then in verse 20, he drills back into the problem, and he gets to the second, second bit. It's not just that there are divisions, but these divisions are directly affecting the Lord's Supper. In fact, the Lord's Supper is becoming the the main platform where the Corinthians are expressing their division. You see, in the early church, it was very common when when the church would gather to observe the Lord's Supper, they would do that in connection with a full meal. They would uh, do it in connection with a full meal and full time of fellowship. Some parts of scripture like Jude verse 12 refers to these as, as love feasts. It was a time where the church would gather in love for the Lord and for one another, they would feast And in conjunction with that, they would observe the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, when you would gather for a feast, the feast actually had built-in patterns to divide the rich from the poor. What I mean is, those who would host a feast already had to be well off. They had to have a house big enough to have people come in. They had to be able to put a spread on the table to feed everyone. But what would happen is, there was a main room that we could think of as the dining room. And the host and those who were wealthy and well-connected, they got to eat there. And then everybody else got to eat in the atrium, the courtyard. 
And so there's this division. The table would literally be divided. Those who were rich, they got to eat in one place. Those who were not, they got to eat in another. And something like that is most likely what is happening at the Corinthian church. Their table is divided by their status. And it's not just that the place settings, the seats at the table were divided, but Paul also leans in and he shows how the portion sizes were divided. Look at at verse 21. He says, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So everyone is just eating uh, their, their own meal. They're not coming together to fellowship. And it's not an equal distribution. He says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. His point is, those who did not, who were not well off, who didn't have the means to bring a lot to this meal, they basically are going hungry. Whereas the rich are having enough to, to eat and drink in excess. They could even get drunk. And Paul's point isn't just that drunkenness is, is a sin, it is, but he's really leaning into the inequity at the table. They're divided in the way they're sitting, and they're divided in the way they're feasting. And that is a problem. Because this supper is supposed to be a supper of the church being united as one body in Christ. And they are not doing that. And so Paul assesses the problem in no uncertain terms. He's saying that their divisive practices meant that the Corinthians were not eating the Lord's Supper. So, so poorly were they practicing it that instead they were basically just eating their own meals. This has become about them, not about the Lord and what he is doing in the life of the church. It's so bad, he says, that the, the rich are essentially despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. You know, the church's worship gathering should not be something that despises the church itself or that makes those who have less in the world feel less than. That's not what Christ came to do, and yet that is what was happening. And so that's why Paul is very intense with his language. He is helping them see this is a big deal. This is a problem in the life of their church. The table that should have nourished the church's unity had become a platform for parading the culture's divisions. That was not okay. And so that's the problem before them. And so then, in verses 23 through 26, Paul turns very quickly to the solution. And the solution to this problem of division in the Corinthian church and at the Lord's table was to return to the Lord's Supper as Jesus himself instituted it. Paul makes it very clear in verse 23 that the way he was teaching them before and now of reminding them again in his letter to practice the Lord's Supper, this was not Paul's own invention and idea. He was giving them what he had received from the Lord. And so if you were with us in our sermon last week on Matthew 26, you'll notice that what Paul says here is almost identical to what we read in Matthew 26 when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Paul is taking them back to Jesus' instructions as a solution to restoring their practice of the Lord's Supper. And as Paul goes, goes through and he explains again what Jesus did and what Jesus said when he gave us the Lord's Supper, Paul highlights in particular that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament for the church to gather and remember Jesus and his death and to proclaim that death until he comes again. You see, when the church gathers to eat the bread and drink the cup, we are invited by God to remember Jesus, giving his body and shedding his blood to establish the new covenant, to do all these things for our redemption, for our forgiveness. And the Lord's Supper, by engaging our sight and our smell, our taste and our touch, the Lord's Supper engages our whole selves in remembering Christ. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament that helps us remember Christ, not just factually, the way you cram for a test and remember things to try to get the right answer. The Lord's Supper helps us remember Christ faithfully and full of faith, a whole-bodied faith. With our, it helps us believe and hope and love in the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because it is engaging all of us. 
And so as the Lord's Supper trains us to remember Christ in these ways, it is nourishing our faith. And I think it's helpful to, to pause and really think about when we talk about faith as Christians, what do we mean? And if you go and you, you look at the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 86, it describes faith in a very helpful way. It says, faith in Jesus is receiving and resting upon him alone for our salvation. Receiving and resting upon Christ alone for our salvation. Think about how the Lord's Supper helps us grow and continue to do both those things. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are receiving unto ourselves the bread and the cup. And in the same token, the Spirit is using those means to help us continue to receive Christ unto ourselves in all the ways we need him. And when we turn to Jesus in faith, we rest upon him because he has accomplished all that needs to be done to save us. And so just like a good meal doesn't just fill your belly, but it brings you into a place of rest. You can sit at this table and enjoy the food and enjoy the fellowship. The Lord's Supper is a place where we get to come and we are reminded we are welcome in our Father's house. We belong to him. We belong here because of who he has made us to be in Jesus. And so when we remember the Lord in observing the Lord's Supper, it engages all of us, not just your brain, but your whole self, and it is training you. You get to receive and rest upon Jesus with all of who you are. Now, in addition to that, in verse 26, Paul also makes it clear that when the church gathers to observe the Lord's Supper, we're also proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And this, this is important in a couple of ways. On the one hand, the Lord's Supper is always accompanied first by the proclamation of the word. Um, in, in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, we were very uh, intentional about showing the connection between the word of God and the sacraments, and that the sacraments are explained by the word, and they display what the word has already said. They work together to tell us who God is and what he's done for our redemption. But in addition to that, when the church gathers at the Lord's table, that act itself proclaims something, and what it proclaims is what Jesus died to do. Jesus died to forgive your sins. He died to forgive my sins. He died to forgive our sins. And in forgiving our sins, in setting us free from our sins, he died to bring us together as God's one people. Remember what the will of God is. It's to be with his people. It's to be with his people together. And that is displayed, that is proclaimed when we come to this table. Until Jesus returns and we get to celebrate in full at the great wedding feast of the Lamb, this table is the place where we proclaim in a very vivid and real way our unity that Christ has accomplished in dying and rising again for us. And so when you think about those two things, the way that the Lord's Supper is given to help us remember him and to proclaim his death until he returns, that kind of brings into focus again why the Corinthians' division was such a big problem. Because their disunity at the table was a direct contradiction of the reasons why Jesus gave the Lord's Supper. Their practices totally inverted its purposes and its meaning. Think back to the text we heard as our assurance of pardon this morning. That, that came from just a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 16 through 17. You can flip back there and look at it with me. But Paul there says this about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless is a participation or a fellowship in the blood of Christ. And the bread that we break is a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ. And this is the key, he says. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
And so what was happening, though, in the Corinthian church is everyone's coming, and they might be bringing their own food, and it's being distributed according to their, their status and their wealth. And so they're acting like there's many breads at the table. They're acting like there's many portions. And so the one body of Christ is not acting like the one body of Christ. They're acting like a bunch of disjointed individuals or disjointed groups that are defined by everything except Jesus and what he's done. And so that's why Paul is showing them this is a problem. Think, think too, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains in another of his letters that Jesus' death, it accomplished the union and communion that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. On the cross, Jesus died to break down every, every wall of hostility that divides us not only from God, but from one another. And so his death creates our peace with God and our peace with one another. His death creates our union with him and our union with one another. And so if we fail to remember Jesus' death and the unity we have not only with him but with one another as his body, when we come to this table, we're forgetting the whole point of it. And if in the Corinthians' case, your practice at the table is contradicting that, then as Paul says, you're not even observing the Lord's Supper. You're doing your own thing because you're not celebrating and remembering and enjoying and participating in what Jesus died to do, which is to unite us to himself and therefore unite us together. And so Paul is helping them see the solution to that problem was for them to repent and to return to Jesus' instructions, to return to the purposes, the glorious purposes that Jesus gave in giving us this meal to remember and proclaim his death until he comes again. And so with that then out there and ready, ready to go, Paul then in the last section, verses 27 through 34, he, he turns to the cure. You see, he doesn't just stop by saying, look, here's the solution, now fix it. But like a very good and compassionate and attentive doctor, he says, here's the solution, now let's work out a plan of cure. Let's figure out how can we work the solution into your everyday life so you can heal, so you can grow, so you can be nourished in the way you need to. And that's what Paul does in these verses. Now, you'll, you'll notice, too, um, that, that even Paul's grammar changes here a little bit. He doesn't just talk to them, second person, like you. He says, verse 27, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup. So what Paul is saying here wasn't just tied to the Corinthians moment, but what he's saying here instructs all believers for all time until Christ returns. This is how we prepare to come to the Lord's table. This is how we can make ourselves ready to truly benefit and be nourished at the Lord's Supper. Now, as we step into these verses, though, I want to start by, by making clear what Paul means. We need to be very clear about his intent because even as I read the text, you may have kind of felt, felt yourself kind of you know, holding your breath because these, these verses are often verses that for many of us, they, they seem kind of scary because they are rather intense. Paul is speaking in no uncertain terms about the, the consequences uh, for, for treating the Lord's Supper frivolously. And for letting their, the Corinthians' division and disunity continue. And so we want, to, we want to be clear about why is Paul speaking in such a, a severe way. Well, his goal, remember, is not to scare us away from the table. His goal is to bring us back to it as it's intended. Because in verse 27, it would be easy to kind of think, well, this seems kind of scary. Because Paul says that those who eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. And then in verse 29, he says that those who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Those are very weighty warnings, are they not? But in fact, often maybe for, for you, these verses, they, they kind of feel like a hazard sign that Paul is putting in front of the table that's just kind of going, warning, you know, no unworthy people allowed. Don't mess this up. But that interpretation actually forgets the gospel. 
You see, because Jesus gave his body and blood in the first place because we are unworthy. You can't make yourself worthy to come into his presence. That's why he had to come to us and give his body and his blood for our redemption. And so Paul is not saying no unworthy people allowed. This table only has the unworthy seated at it. What Paul is saying is that unworthy people must come in a way that is worthy of the table. There's a difference between talking about making yourself worthy enough and then observing the table in a worthy manner. And that distinction is key. Paul is talking about the way we actually celebrate and participate in the table itself. And you can think about that again with the Corinthians. Their problem was literally what they were doing at the table. That's what Paul is correcting. But even then, you might still be thinking of the later verses. You know, verse 30, Paul tells the Corinthians that their unworthy practices at the table had resulted in God's judgment. We don't even get the whole story. He just kind of drops in there like, look, the fact that you guys are, are, are acting divided and disunited at the table, that's why some of you guys are weak and ill, and some of y'all have even died. And we kind of want to be like, whoa, what? Like, that's, that's intense. What's going on here? Um, and Paul doesn't, you know, he doesn't stay there. Well, why not? Because he knows where our hearts will go. He knows we're going to say, well, all right, well, I mean, what, what's going on here? Like, is this some Indiana Jones stuff? Like, if you choose unworthily, you choose the wrong cup, like, you're just going to drop right there. Like, what, what is happening? No, this isn't magical in that sense. Paul goes right away to a very key distinction. He says, listen, one, if you judge yourself truly, if you prepare well, you, you won't be judged. This table is meant to nourish you. But two, whenever God judges his people, it is not for our condemnation. It is for our discipline. And that distinction between discipline and condemnation is key. You will find this all over the Bible. But God's judgment is, is his action against sin in real time. But it is, the Bible is very clear that God's condemnation, which is the ultimate act of his judgment, it is that final verdict of guilty. It's the final punishment and just consequence for sin that is eternal separation from God. Condemnation is not over Christians. In Romans 8.1, Paul spells this out beautifully. He says, there is therefore now in Christ no condemnation. That's an absolute none. It does not remain. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus took the condemnation that I deserve and that you deserve on himself. And he endured the whole of it. And so if you're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not now, not in two weeks, not ever. All eternity, you are free from condemnation because Christ endured it. And so any judgment of the Lord that does befall Christians is for something else that's related but very different. And that is for our discipline. And discipline is, is not just you know, punitive in the sense that you know, I'm just gonna, gonna do this, make you feel bad, and that's it. Discipline is about training. Discipline is about shaping. It can be painful. I mean, if you're an athlete, you know this. If the discipline in your training doesn't hurt, you're probably not growing your muscles and getting better at your game. And so when the Lord disciplines his people, he's doing it, though, as a good father who knows exactly what his people need to grow in Christlikeness, who knows exactly what we need to be shaken out of our sin and to, to recognize the severity of our actions so that we could turn from that and receive something better that Christ is giving us. And that, Paul is saying, is what God was up to. The judgment that the Corinthian church had suffered was there to prepare them, to discipline them, so that when Paul came and gave these instructions, they could receive it and hear it well and see, we need this. This is what will help us grow as a church. We need to pay attention and listen. And so for us, anytime you, you may be wondering, like, is, is the Lord trying to judge me in some sense? Is he shaking me up in my life? Um, you know, that's a good question, and it's one that's often best asked and answered in conversation with others. But one bank of the river that you have that is clear is no. 
that the Lord is never condemning you in Christ because Christ has been condemned for you. And if the Lord is shaking up your life, he's doing it for your good in Christ. And so be on the lookout. How is that drawing you not away, but bringing you near to our God? And that is what Paul is doing in these verses. His intent is not to scare us from the table, but to help us come in a way that will truly benefit from it. And so he gives the Corinthians and he gives us two key practices for preparing to come to the table. And our preparations, he says in verse 28, they begin with examining ourselves. Our preparation for the Lord's Supper begins with self-examination. Now think about with what was going on for the Corinthians, think about how significant that was. They had turned the Lord's Supper into a spectacle. It was all about this parade of look at who is wealthy, look at all the stuff I have and pay attention to me. Paul's saying, no, the Lord's Supper is about the Lord. It's not about you being, being center stage. And so the way we prepare for the Lord's Supper is not thinking about how can I get people to look at me. It's no, look at yourself and not just yourself in light of yourself, but yourself in light of Jesus. Look at yourself in light of the gospel. When we uh, practice self-examination, the purpose of that is to pay attention to your specific needs for Jesus. Where are you struggling with sin? Where are you haunted by guilt? Where are, are, are you longing to be reassured of God's love? Those are the things to look for in self-examination. So often in life, we're just cruising along, and those questions come, but we just kind of toss them behind us. We don't want to think about it. Paul's saying, when we prepare for the Lord's Supper, that's the time to consider those things. You know, if, if there's a check engine light coming on, like this is the time, pop the hood, look under there, because when you come to the table, you're gonna get what you need to address those longings and those needs in your heart. And in the same way, self-examination, it gives us an opportunity to cultivate our faith. You know, it gives you the chance to ask yourself, am I looking to Jesus alone as my only hope and comfort in life and in death? Or are there other things that are, that are crowding into my life? The thing about idols, many, many have pointed this out, the thing about an idol is that an idol is ruthless. An idol won't forgive you. If you idolize success when you mess up, that idol will whip you into a pulp because you failed it and there's no mercy from it. And so if there are areas in your life where like, I just feel beat down, I feel discouraged, um, that's a good indication. Are you looking to something other than Jesus? You know, take time, consider that, and recognize as you come to the table, you get to be nourished by the only one who knows you and loves you fully. And you get to come to his table and, and be met by him. And so ultimately, as we practice self-examination, what this is doing is it's preparing your spiritual palate to be nourished by Christ. You know, if you're going to eat a really good meal, um, you need to know so something about the ingredients. Or if you enjoy a really good beverage, like, you need to know, what am I tasting? Um, so much of, like, fast food, like, it's just fry it, dunk it in sauce, and that's it. Like, there's no, you don't need to train your palate to taste anything, because it's quick. But, like, a good meal, not only takes a long time to make, but... You need to be intentional and think about, what am I tasting here? You get to savor it. You get to enjoy it. Self-examination is doing that for your spiritual palate. You get to think, where, where do I really need Jesus in my life right now? So then when you come to the supper, you experience him nourishing you in precisely those places. It's not in general. It's not an abstract. It's real. And it meets you where you are. And so then, that, that's the first thing. You know, we prepare through self-examination. And then in verse 29, Paul describes the other aspect of our preparation, discerning the body. Now, in that verse, he kind of says it in the inverse. He says, you know, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so the implication is, when we come to the Lord's Supper to eat and drink the bread and the cup, we need to do so discerning the body. 
And, and the question is, well, what does Paul mean by this? What does he mean by discern the body? One, one possibility is he's talking about recognize this bread represents the, the Lord's body, which he, he gave for us. But it seems like, based on the context, that what Paul means here by discerning the body is actually not the, the body, Jesus' physical body represented by the bread, but actually the body of Christ that is the church. We are the body of Christ. Think about what was going on in the Corinthian church. They were not discerning the body. They were, Paul said, despising it because they were breaking themselves up in all the ways that their culture was used to dividing people up. They were breaking themselves up into the rich and poor instead of discerning the fact that, like, no, we are one body because of Jesus. And so to discern the body is to meditate on what Jesus has done, not only in giving his flesh for us, but in uniting us to himself and making one new body where there once was division that had been run amok with sin. And so we know that this is what Paul means because this is precisely what the Corinthians were struggling with. They were not recognizing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as co-heirs of of the only eternal son of God, as those for whom this bread bread and cup represent the body and blood that were given for their collective salvation. And so, that's why as Paul wraps it up in 33 and 34, he tells them, listen, my brothers and my sisters, and that title alone, he's already cluing them in, your family, you are one body. He says, so, when you come together, wait for one another. Don't rush ahead and make this meal about you eating all you can because you've got the means to do so. Wait for one another because you are one body. You are Christ's body, the church. Discern that. Let that shape how you think about your life and the way you live every day because that is who you are. You are the body of Jesus nourished together at this table. And so neither self-examination nor discerning the body is meant to be this kind of esoteric thing or something that's so difficult that it's unattainable for ordinary Christians to do in our everyday lives. Paul is giving the Corinthians and he's giving us these two things to help us prepare for the Lord's Supper every week we get to come to it. And so for us, as as we consider these things, a great question to ask, especially because in one week, the Lord's Supper will be before us and we will gather at it. So the question for us today is, what will you do this week as you prepare for the Lord's Supper next Sunday? What will you do this week to help you prepare for the Lord's Supper next Sunday? One place we can start, and we can all start here, is to reflect on the ways that our culture might be shaping our participation in the Lord's Supper. Remember, that was sort of the underlying issue for the Corinthians. Their culture had very clear ways. This is how you divide the rich and the poor. This is how you throw a feast and make it a spectacle of your own wealth and status. And because they embraced that uncritically, their practice at the table was off off base. Now for us, uh, we have very different practices. That's not likely to happen. It's not like we come to the Lord's Supper and we start going in different groups or something. But think about how our culture shapes us and shapes the way we think about worship, and therefore shapes the way we think about the Lord's Supper. We live in a very individualistic culture. We also, uh, I'll I'll spare all all the nerdy philosophical details, but we also live in a culture that's shaped very much by romanticism. And when you put those things together, what happens is we live in a culture that prioritizes individual emotional experiences as the measure of reality. What I mean is this, how often do you walk away from a worship service, or do you walk away, especially from the Lord's Supper, and you think to yourself, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, why? Well, I didn't feel anything. So you notice what happens? So often we we determine whether our gathering in worship was for good or for ill based upon how we felt about it. 
But I mean, th- think about if, that, if that's the measure of worship, that's devastating. Like I've got, I've got toddlers. If I've got to feel a whole lot, um, like I'm doomed because I feel tired a lot right now. Um, and, and many of you do too, too, whether your kids are young like mine or they're older. You're probably even more tired than I am. God bless you. Um, I get it. If emotional experience is, is what we need to feel, if, if you struggle with, with your mental health, the Lord's Supper is supposed to help you here. If you have to feel a certain thing at the, at the supper, how is that going to nourish you? And so often we walk away or even we, we don't come to the supper. We come with dread because we're afraid I'm not going to feel anything. And we assume if I don't feel anything, it's not real. But that is not biblical Christianity. That is our culture. And again, there are lots of reasons behind that, and it's a nerdy story that I love to talk about. But that's not important right now. What's important is if that's what you're struggling under, you get to be free because the Lord's Supper actually helps with that very problem. And, and the catechism question in the bulletin gets at this. It's saying, look, when you receive that bread and that cup, you're really consuming bread, and, and in our case, juice. And even more really, in the power of the Spirit, your faith is being nourished by the body and blood of Jesus. It is real. That catechism question drills into us. Something really is happening, not because you thought the right thing, not because you felt the right thing, but because your God is the one and true living God, and he has promised to use this to nourish you. And so that's one way where we can, we can really examine our expectations. If you're coming and you're expecting to feel something and you go away and you didn't feel something, don't conclude that the Lord's Supper was off or not. This supper meets you whether you are in the heights of joy or the depths of woe or anywhere in between. This supper will nourish you because God has promised for it to do just that. And of course, none of that means that that our individual experiences at the table are irrelevant, but they're not primary. And so that, again, it sets you free to focus not on how you're feeling in this exact moment, but it sets you free to focus on Jesus. Remember, recognize how self-examination really is about you looking to Jesus in real time. It's not just about you looking at yourself, but it's about you looking at yourself so you can see Jesus more clearly in your life. And a great way to, to kind of give you some banks of the river for, all right, well, how do I practice self-examination well is this. Look for what you can celebrate and look for what you can anticipate. Look for what you can celebrate. What has Jesus been doing in your life that you can give thanks for when you come to this table? And what can you anticipate? Paul says, we proclaim his death until he comes. There is a better meal coming, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. It's not here yet. And so there, there ought to be this sort of sense of anticipation when we come to the Lord's Supper, like, Jesus, I can't wait for you to return and set me free from this struggle once and for all. Or even, Jesus, you've grown me so much this past year, and I can celebrate that, and I look forward to the way you will use this table to nourish me this coming week. What can you celebrate and what can you anticipate? That is a helpful set of banks of the river because often, if you're like me, when you, when you examine yourself, you can get lost in your own head. It's so easy to get lost in the back alleys of your own sinfulness. And suddenly, instead of recognizing those as the places you need to, uh, to, to receive Jesus, you, you start to get lost and you feel like, I don't even know the way back to the table. Focus on what can you celebrate. And if you've gotten lost in the back alleys of your sinfulness, you can celebrate the fact that Jesus has found you and he sees you there. And the light of his grace illuminates even that place in your life. And you still get to come to the supper and be nourished. And another thing you can do as you prepare for the supper is you can do this with one another. One of the best ways we can discern the body of Christ, which is his church, is to recognize that there is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. None of us is alone. I mean, you think about, if you keep up with like sociology and some of the studies about loneliness in our culture, it, it really is 
it seems a type of epidemic. It, it is staggering, the rates of loneliness that we all feel. But if you look around at this room, you have a family in Christ. You have people who have been saved by the same Savior. You have people who have the same faith and hope and love that you do. And one of the, the, the most neglected gifts we have as Christians is one another. And we neglect that gift a lot of times because it can be hard work um, to, to get to know each other. Because oftentimes, we wouldn't have much in common without Jesus. But that, though a challenge, is also a beautiful thing. Because that lets us have a unity that is truly otherworldly. It's not from any kingdom or group or tribe or team of this world. It is from the kingdom of God that we are brought together. And we get to enjoy that fellowship. And a way you can do that then is, you know, call someone up from the church or get together for coffee or, or have dinner together and talk about what can you celebrate and what can you anticipate and do that together and encourage each other. And if you can't do it before you come to the Lord's Supper, well then, you know, next Sunday on the Lord's Day Sabbath, make plans to get lunch together or, or have dinner. Um, you know, if you're youth group parents, you could drop your kids off and then go hang out and grab coffee together. But the more we look for those opportunities to kind of play the angles and get close to each other, and even get close to people like, I don't really know that person at our church, but I like to get to know them. You know, take that opportunity and say, hey, my name's Matt. I'd like to grab coffee. And, and you can just kind of name, like, I know this feels a little awkward, like we don't know each other yet, but like lean into that and be, anticipate Jesus to use that to nourish you both and to help you grow as his body. And that alone would be something to celebrate when you come to the supper again. And, and one last thing I, I, would, I would add when it comes to thinking about, all right, so what can we do as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper is think about, again, Paul helps us kind of have a, a future orientation. We do this until the Lord returns, which means generation after generation after generation of God's people get to come to this table. And so, you know, children, you are invited to the Lord's Supper. If you've been baptized, your baptism is that standing invitation for you to respond in faith and to come and to join your church family at this supper and to receive by faith the body and blood of Jesus. And so if you've never come to the table, um, we would love to help you do that. Uh, the process is you'll, uh, you'll be talking to your parents along the way about what it means, and then you get to meet with two of the elders of our church. And that sounds a little scary, like, I've got to meet with two of the elders. Like, it sounds all intense. Um, but what that is, is it's an opportunity for you to get to talk about who Jesus is and what you know about him, the things you've been learning in your Sunday school classes, the things your parents have been teaching you, you get to say, I know I need Jesus, and I know this is what he's done for me, and I know he gives me this table to help me grow in that. And so parents, if there are ways we as a church can help you in preparing your kids to come to the Lord's Supper, we wanna do that. We have a resource on the website, um, and we would love to meet with you and, and talk with you about that. One of the things, though, that I think can trip both young people and especially their, our, their, us as parents up about this is we worry like, have they figured enough out? But remember, them coming to Lord's Supper is not about passing a final exam. You know, this is the, be the beginning years. They will have a lifetime at this table. And so all that is required is for them to know their need of him and to express their faith in him as the one who gave his body and blood for them. And so with all those things in mind, you know, just, just pick one or two because we've got, we've got a week ahead of us. We know the Lord's Supper is coming, but how can you, how, not just can you, but how will you prepare this week to be nourished in your faith at this, at this table next week? Let's take time to do this because in a drive-through culture, it's so easy just to, to zip through and be like, wow, wow, how, you know, another week went by. So just carve out just a little bit of time 
Take time to examine yourself. Really know your need for Jesus so that when you come next week and you come to the table, you can experience and taste and see the Lord's goodness in the exact places you need him. Let's be intentional about discerning the body. We are one people in Christ. Think about how much we need that, not just because we're lonely. There's an election season coming. There are all sorts of ways our culture divides in light of those things. So how beautiful and glorious it is that we can come here and we are united in the one table that will last forever. That is a glorious reality, and that's what we get to do. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you, Lord, that in a life where so often so many of our deepest fears and anxieties and our questions are, do I belong? Do I fit in? And Lord, you have told us that in Christ we belong. In Christ we have a seat at the table, at your table. And Lord, our our seats are not determined by what we bring to the table, but but by yourself, what you have given. And Lord Jesus, you've given the whole of yourself. You've given your body and your blood to take the condemnation that we deserve, and you took it all. You drank that cup of the Lord's wrath to the dregs, and not a drop remains. And so, oh Lord, would you help us uh, to prepare well to come to the Lord's Supper. May that not be a frightful thing, but a faithful and and, and joyful thing for us, Lord, even in the weeks when we're tired, especially then, or the weeks where we're weary and filled with woe, especially then, Lord, help us to prepare well, knowing that when we gather at this table, we get to celebrate how good you are, how many amazing ways you meet us by your grace, and you build us up, and you comfort us, and assure us as your people. Lord, help us to grow in discerning the body, to recognize that none of us is, is a lone wolf, And none of us is isolated or cut off, but we are all together members of your body. We are united united to you, we are united to one another. May we, Lord, cultivate these things, and would you use the means of grace, would you use this supper to nourish us in that unity? Lord, we need it. So much pulls us apart from each other, so much of us, so much pulls us into ourselves, so would you draw us to yourself and to one another that we may grow for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.